Good morning. It's great to be together again. Great to be able to worship together. It's great to be able to explore God's word together, isn't it? To be able to listen to what he would say to us. Um, I'm actually going to start, going to put it back on you. Going to start with a question very quickly for you to discuss uh, with someone near to you just for a minute or so. I want you to think about this question. How do you want Faversham Community Church to be known? How do you want Faversham Community Church to be known? If you're a visitor here this morning, and actually this isn't, isn't your, your home church, maybe think about actually how, do, how would you want the church to be known? So maybe a little bit more general. So there's your questions to start with. One minute, start discussing, and then we'll come back together in just a moment. Okay. Just like to be drawing those conversations to a close. I'm sure there could have been uh, more for you to be carrying on with. Uh, and I appreciate that that question was just very much sprung on you out of the blue. Uh, and actually, I think it's a question that's very worth considering and giving time to think about and to ponder on um, more than just for a, for a minute when you've suddenly been, had the question sprung on you at the beginning of a sermon. So I would encourage you to, to take that away and think about it, uh, actually. Think about how you would want the church to be known. And... This is really what we're going to be thinking about a little bit this morning as we're carrying on with our series in 1 Thessalonians. And last week we started the new, new series and we were seeing last week that this church in Thessalonica, although it was a very young church, it was, um, it was already known for its outworking of faith, love and hope. These were, th- were things that Paul was able to say, look, these are, this is what I recognise about you to the extent that I'm going to give God thanks that we're seeing this. So in terms of what they were known for, or if we'd like to think of it in terms of reputa- reputation, this church, although very young, was already starting to get this reputation to the point where Paul was saying, look, I know that you are doing so well in faith, love and hope. Now, I read something in the week that really got me kind of got me thinking in terms of thinking about what reputations are. And what I read was this, is that reputations are built by responses and actions that flow out of identity. Okay, so in terms of who we are, what our identity is, that kind of dictates and, and shapes our actions uh, and, our, and, um, and our responses to different things that go on. Those in turn, when people see those and witness those things, that's the reputation that we build. Does that make sense? So people see who we are through what we do, or at least they make, uh, kind of, they build this reputation and they have this projection of what you are like. And last week, uh, we spent some of our time thinking about that really, as what Paul was doing was really rooting the identity of the church in God the Father and in Jesus Christ. If you were there, do you remember that? We were saying actually that's where Paul's confidence was, knowing that what made this church who they were was because they were gods. And out of the, their identity, they were living out their identity, that's where their reputation was coming from. That's where what they were known from was coming from. And if Paul's saying, look, we we give thanks for your faith, love and hope, that's because that's what they were living out. And that came from who they were. If you've got your Bibles, if you can turn to 1 Thessalonians 1, uh, just while you're finding your way there, just to say that today what we're going to see is that Paul's building on this idea of what the Thessalonian church was becoming known for and what their reputation was like. So we kind of get this little snapshot of it last week in verse 3, where he's talking about this faith, uh, love, and, and hope working together. And he's going to build on that in terms of the reputation that 
they have. And as we unpack this part of the letter, we'll discover not only did the church have examples to imitate in Paul, Silas and Timothy, such was the transformation in their lives, such was the change that had come about, that they themselves had become examples worthy of imitation. What I hope is that this morning inspires us and challenges us to consider what it means to be living examples. And that really, that's my title that I've got my working title for this morning, is Living Examples. Which is why I wanted to start us by thinking about, actually, what do we want to be known for as a church? It is an important question. Because actually, each one of us individually and corporately as the church, we have the opportunity to be an example. So let's read. We're going to pick up from verse 1. Again, so it says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the, Th- the Thessalonians. I'm struggling again already. I've got most of the way through last time. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labour of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait For his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now in some sermon series, particularly if we're working through a book or a letter of the Bible, or if we're working through a few chapters, we have to divide it up into portions. We only have a certain amount of time to speak, and so we have to work our way through and think, actually, what's going to work well in the time in that we have? But what we have to remember is that this was a letter. It was Paul actually says at the end, he said, this is a letter that's to be read out to the church. So actually, the flow of the letter, if you were listening all in one go, would be very different than if you were approaching it week to week. The reason I say this is because if we're not careful, what we can do is kind of compartmentalise what's being said. That was last week's sermon. Now we're on to this week's sermon. And we can almost kind of move on from what was brought last week. And it's not always very helpful, which is why I've read from the start of chapter 1. We did the first three verses last week, but I wanted us to go over them again. Because what we're looking at today continues on from the three verses we had last week. So we have to have that flow that goes on. As I say, Paul's commended the church for their, for their faith, for their love and their hope. And what we're looking at today is a continuation of what he's brought. It's being built upon them. So Paul has spoken already about giving thanks for the life that the church is living, that is clearly demonstrating faith that leads to good works, love that leads to labouring for others, and hope that produces steadfastness and endurance. Faith, love and hope worked out in all spheres of life to the point where Paul is able to say, this is what really stands out about you. This is what marks you as a church. This is what marks you as believers. 
And as Paul continues, I want us this morning, as I say, to look at the example of Paul, Silas and Timothy, the example that they were to the church, and then in turn how the church became examples themselves. So firstly, let's think about Paul and his team. Paul writes this, he says, that for we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So Paul's talking about the time that he spent with this church. He's saying about what it was that he and his team brought with them. And he's talking about actually how they were when they were among them. And when laying the context and background for the letter last week, we, we pointed to Acts 17. And it's in Acts 17 where we kind of get the, um, where we read about Paul and Silas's visit to Thessalonica and the circumstances in which the church was started. And we see that when they arrive in the city, this was Paul's model. He heads straight for the Jewish synagogues. He's there for three Saturdays. And while he's there, he reasons with the people who are there from the scriptures. So he takes their scriptures and he takes the word of God and he reasons with them through the word. He would have spoken about the prophecies that were, that were in there of a saviour who was coming to save God's people. One who was coming to bring them freedom. One that they'd been waiting for for centuries. To come and to bring freedom to the people. And then what he, so he highlights these prophecies and then he speaks about Jesus' life, death, resurrection and proving that Jesus is the one that fulfills the prophecies. So he takes the words and the scriptures that they've already got and he shows, he, he kind of evidences and proves that Jesus is the one that they've been waiting for. That Jesus has come. So they come with words. They teach in the synagogue. They teach the people. They teach this message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. But they came, Paul says, not only with words. We can't downplay the significance that their words had. Obviously, it did. It's the way that Paul worked when he went to new places. But it says, he says, they also came with power in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul and his team had been radically changed by Jesus. If we think about Paul, he was a persecutor of Christians. He wanted to see Christianity wiped out, shut down before it had even had a chance to get going. And then he meets the risen Jesus and everything changes for him. This is a guy who actually would have, would have carried a reputation as someone for Christians to be totally fearful of and afraid of. But having encountered Jesus, everything changes for him. He's been radically changed. And the gospel had completely changed their way of thinking. And because of that, their whole lives were transformed. Not just the words that they spoke. But they were now filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit gave them power. It was the Holy Spirit that was producing new fruit in their lives where they hadn't been that fruit before. People would have been able to witness it. People who would have known of Paul or heard about Paul kind of thinking, or he would have been Saul at that time, but thinking, is this really the same guy that we've heard about, or the same guy that we've known? Because actually, if we look at him now, he's completely different to the way that he was before. Because it was about their whole lives. It's about being led by the Spirit. 
being filled with the Spirit. So they came with words, but they came with a whole lot more. There's, um, I don't know if you've heard of a guy called um, James Corden. He's a TV presenter. And he, he does this thing on his shows called Carpool Karaoke. Has anyone seen this? So you'll pick up a celebrity in his car. Gem- for the most part, they tend to be people who, who are singers or in, in bands. And then the idea is that they're travelling to work together and they put music on and it's normally the celebrities' songs and they have a sing-song in the car. It's all very good fun. And he, there, I saw a clip of one the other day and he was with um, a singer called Usher. And Usher was talking about... He was brought up that he was, he was claiming that he was a vegan. And he's like, yeah, I'm really trying to be a vegan. And he's like, but I really like beef. Like, and then the list grew and he's like, and chicken. He's like, and bacon for breakfast. And James Corden is like, you can't call yourself a vegan if you're also eating beef, chicken and bacon. He's like, that's not how it works. Here's the thing, if you're fully convinced by something, if you have full conviction about something, then there's a sincerity about the change that it brings in your life. It's not just about saying, oh, I'm, I'm trying to do this, but actually I'm going to still keep hold of some of these other bits I like. It's like, actually, if you're fully convinced by something, then there's a genuineness and a, and a sincerity to the change that it brings about in your life. You can't be the same, can you? If you're fully convinced by something. And Paul's saying, actually, we came with full conviction in the sense that they were, uh, what they were proclaiming, they were living, it had produced this change because they were so uh, confident that what they believed was true. And for Paul and his teammates, what the Holy Spirit had done in their hearts was seen, it was witnessed by the church in Thessalonica, and it convinced them too that they wanted to become radical disciples also. So in that sense, there was conviction on behalf of of the people who were hearing it that what they'd seen and what they'd witnessed and what they'd heard in these guys and they'd seen this change made them want to become radical disciples. I was really struck by the second part of verse 5. Paul says this, he says that you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. They were present. They were there. They were among them. They weren't trying to convert them from a distance. It wasn't just a matter of, look, we've just got to get our message across and then we're going to be on our way, just passing through, just got to kind of drop this bit of information by and allow you to do what you want with it. But actually, such was their heart that they, uh, they came, not just so that the, they could get to know the city, but so that the city could get to know them as well. They were around the people. Do you know what happens? If you spend time with people, you begin to get an insight into whether what they say they believe is actually true in their life. Because if you spend time around people, you'll actually see the evidence of it in their lives. That's what Paul and, and the other guys were doing. Look, we've got this truth to tell you, but you know we proved ourselves what kind of people we were. We've proved that what we're calling you to, this is who we are. We've been changed. The gospel is good news. Look at us. Just look at us. We'll prove it to you in the way that we are. And Paul confidently can say that this is what we brought to you. We brought this gospel not just to be seen but also to be heard in us. They proved themselves through the way they lived, through every sphere of life. And Paul and his team, they passed the gospel to the Thessalonians but not to be kept to themselves. That was never the intention. They never brought them the gospel message and said, look, this is for you. 
We want to see your lives change. We want to see you trusting in Jesus uh, and putting your hope in Jesus. But this is for you. Just keep it, guard it, keep it to yourselves. No, no, no. Because the church that receives the gospel must pass it on. It has to be passed on. Passed on. In one of the commentaries I was reading, they said it's like, it's like a chain reaction. And really that's what the gospel is. It's a chain reaction. When the gospel comes, it's passed on. People get saved, churches are planted, communities are transformed. That's what the gospel does. So it can't be kept to ourselves. It has to be passed on. Now, I'm going to talk about sport, but stay with me. The American football team I support is the Miami Dolphins. What I'm going to say isn't so much about sport, it's more about culture. So, what's happened in this off-season, they've got rid of a lot of players. They've got rid of a lot of high-profile, very talented players. But what they're doing, they're bringing in players who they believe are going to have a real positive impact on the culture of the team. They're bringing in guys that are leaders. They're bringing in guys that uh, live in the sense they, they, they kind of excellent models of what the life of an American football player should be like. And what they're doing is they're bringing these veteran guys in to get alongside the younger guys. So the younger guys can be around them and they can watch how they do life. They can watch them on, on the playing field, on the practice field, in the gym, in team meetings, when it comes to what they eat, when it comes to how they handle the media, when it comes to how they spend their free time. Because there's this recognition, actually, there's this need for, for examples and models that these younger guys can look up to. And if they can get that, then the culture of the whole organisation is going to change. It's why we need good examples. It's why we need good role models. And the hope is that, as, that, the, culture, uh, that the culture will change as, over time, those who were uh, the imitators, so those who had been imitated become those that are imitated themselves as other people come in. It's something that's passed on. And the whole of the culture of that organisation is something that will, will spread and grow and kind of be passed on and passed down. Now this is what we see with this church because they, having had the example of Paul and Silas and Timothy, they, they have become examples themselves. Verse 6, Paul says, and you have become imitators of us and of the Lord. And this is, for Paul, this is a really a repeated exhortation to the churches that he spends his time with and the churches he deals with. He says it often. He says, look to us as your example. We're calling you to this lifestyle of radical obedience to Jesus, of radical change. Look to us as examples. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1 Paul says to the church in Corinth, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul's call to the church was to imitate him, to look to him as an example. And that, the word imitate there, um, actually, it mean, it's not simply to copy, but to follow. There's that sense of, of following, just as he is following Jesus. Can you see that sort of chain reaction thing going on again? What happens when the gospel is moving? This is what we see has happened to this, to this church. They became imitators of Paul, Silas and Timothy and of Jesus. They followed their example. These guys had proved themselves. They came with word. 
with power, with Holy Spirit, with full conviction. Such was the example they set. There was something for that church to grab hold of and say, this is what we want to be like. We know what this looks like. The overarching mission of the church is to go and make disciples. The overarching mission of the church is not to build church in that sense, it's to make disciples. And as you make disciples, churches will come out of that. And we make disciples by being or becoming true disciples ourselves. Let's remind ourselves of the circumstances this church was in. It was a fledgling church, very new. Those who had started it have been forced out of town. So there they were, they were facing hostility, rejection and persecution. They weren't imitating Paul's example in comfortable conditions. They weren't excelling in faith, love and hope in in a city where they were accepted and welcomed by all, where people were happy to hear what they were saying and to have conversations and, you know, chat about what was going on. Actually, this was a place where there was a lot of affliction going on, a lot of pressure on them. Yet they're persevering and they're pressing on. And they're following the example of Jesus and they're following the example of Paul and Silas and Timothy in the midst of those circumstances in which they're facing. Paul's mentioned earlier, they they came with power in the Holy Spirit. But the same Holy Spirit who gives power also gives joy. That's what Paul says about this church. He says, look, in the midst of affliction, in the midst of what you're going through, you're joyful You're joyful in spite of what's going on. Last year we did a series on Philippians. And again, understanding the context of that letter means you read it in a whole different way. Because Paul was writing that when he was in prison. (coughs) His his physical freedom had been taken away from him. Yet he's writing this letter to the church. And the theme of joy runs through it to such an extent that we called the series joy. Because that's just kind of what that letter shouts out. And it's in these conditions, Paul says, the church became an example in Macedonia and Achaia. These are two Roman provinces. If we were to look at it today, it would kind of cover all of modern day Greece. What a reputation that is. What an example that is. Paul's saying, because of the way that you are, particularly in the midst of the circumstances you're facing, but how well you're doing as a church, you've become an example to an area that now is the whole of modern day Greece. That's some reputation, isn't it? It's spread far and it's spread wide. You see, when we don't respond in the way the world would, when we respond to situations and circumstances in life in a way that we wouldn't have before we started to follow Jesus, then it sends a message. It sends a message that our lives are built on different foundations. And so for this church in Thessalonica, as they're living out, this life that they've been called to as they're, they're kind of projecting, not just projecting, but as they're living with joy in the midst of affliction. Paul's saying, look, there's an example that you're setting throughout the whole of this region because it's showing that your lives are built on something different. That your lives are built on something that means actually in the midst of persecution, you're joyful. 
Why should they be joyful? Their lives were probably, before Paul and that turned up, their lives were probably fairly comfortable. They fitted in with everyone else. There might not have been as much challenge to what they're doing. Yet their lives have been radically changed. Their circumstances have been radically changed. And yet they're joyful in the midst of it. And what we see in the world today is that the gospel is advancing and the church is growing in places where it's not easy to be a Christian. There are more Christians in China than there are people in the United Kingdom. That's in a place where actually the church has to be fairly secretive in order to keep people safe. There are underground churches in Iran and Nepal that are thriving and growing. The place where the gospel is advancing more and more people in in terms of church growth uh, is happening more in Africa, the continent of Africa, than anywhere else in the world at the minute. And these are places where it's not easy to be a Christian. It's illegal in some of these places to be a Christian. Isn't that what we see with this church here? And actually the way we live in the midst of those circumstances sends a message. We, at this moment in time, we don't, it's hard for us to get our head around what it's like, perhaps, to face persecution of that kind. Because we have a lot of freedoms that are protected at the moment in this country to be able to worship. Might feel like actually there's a pressure coming in terms of actually what we are allowed to say and how we say it and where we can say it. But we all have pressures and difficulties and seasons of life where we think actually where's the joy in this but our lives are built on different foundations to those of the world and actually when we live even in the midst of difficulty and hurt and suffering the way that we live is an example to to the world around us in terms of where our hope and our security lies Now when Paul tells the church the word of God has sounded forth from them, I love the word he uses here. When he says sounded forth, it, it's a roll of thunder or a trumpet call. It's, a, it's booming. It's not a whisper. It's not a slight murmur. The gospel proclaimed by the, the Thessalonians was a loud noise that had gone forth from them. And this is part of the passage that really gripped me. And I spent quite a bit of time pondering this and thinking about this. And at the same time as I was preparing, I was reading... Uh, some thoughts about you know when people sometimes speak of the success of a church uh, how we measure how successful a church is maybe a better way of thinking about it is how healthy a church is and how we, we measure the health of a church and this question came up was like, actually do we think that it's about Sundays do we measure the health of a church by what happens on a Sunday by the attendance on a Sunday do we think that actually in order for people to encounter God, in order for people to, to come to know Jesus, in order for people to come into fellowship with him, uh, they have to come to a church meeting because that's where God will meet them. God will meet them in meetings like this. But what about the people who can't come? What about the people who do not come? What about the people who will not? 
come. Phil Moore says this, he says about this letter, he says that Paul does not measure the health of the church based on the number of seats filled on a Sunday, but how much the word of God echoes forth from it Monday through to Sunday. I'm going to say that again, because this is why this bit of the passage really gripped me, challenged me. Paul does not measure the health of a church based on the number of seats filled on a Sunday, but on how much the word of God echoes forth from it from Monday through to Sunday. This is why we speak about and emphasise everyone a witness. This is why we've been wanting to invest in life on the front line and things like that. Because each one of us in our everyday situations has an opportunity to sound out the word of God. Through living lives that are living examples of what being a follower of Jesus is all about. If, we, that's, if, if we're talking about actually how do we measure the health of this church. It's about how much from us does the word of God echo out Monday through Sunday. Not just what we do on a Sunday morning. Not just words. Remember what Paul said. We came not just with words but with power, with the Holy Spirit and with, with full conviction. What would that look like for you in your, in your everyday situation? To live a life, that, to live a life like that. To live a life where people, uh, people can, can see something of your faith. And for this church, their reputation had spread far and wide. He says, actually, it's gone beyond Macedonia and Achaia. He says, it's gone everywhere. People everywhere know about you. They know about your faith. The word of God has sounded out from you. And you might think, actually, Paul, maybe you're just getting a bit carried away. Can't be that it's gone everywhere. And maybe he is kind of exaggerating a little bit. But let's not forget that Thessalonica was built, where it was built, it was built on a natural port. It had good transport links by land and by sea. People come and go from that place. And if people are hearing about this church and witnessing this church, they're taking that news with them where they go on to. So their reputation... Their example has gone far beyond them and has gone everywhere. To the extent where Paul's saying he doesn't need to say anything. He doesn't need to tell of, the, of, of this church. He doesn't need to tell people what happened when they went to the church. Because people are reporting back to him what happened about when Paul and Silas and that went there in the first place. Paul could be like, I know I was there. But he's not having to tell people. It's being reported back to him. Doesn't this make you think, actually, how consistent must the lives of this church be? How faithful must the lives of this church be? If reports are coming back to Paul, to Paul saying, I don't need to say anything else. This church is living it. This church are making Jesus known where they are. And in verses 9 to 10, Paul tells the church what others are hearing, what others are witnessing about the church. This is where we're going to just draw to a close in a little bit. So this is what Paul's hearing, okay? This is what churches, um, this is what people are reporting back to him. It says, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. This would be a good place to go. 
If someone was wondering what it means to become a Christian, or perhaps a word that, that we would use maybe in more kind of Christian circles if we're talking about what conversion looks like. And really, this is what Paul's saying. is like, this is what, com- what conversion to Christianity looks like. And he talks about three verbs, so three doing words. He says it's all about this, and this is what people have witnessed about this church. It's about turning, it's about serving, it's about waiting. Turn, serve, wait. They turn to God from idols. For Thessalonians, there would have been false gods, idol worship, there would have been pagan worldviews, would have been a city where actually there was a lot going on in terms of religion and ancestry and that kind of thing. But Paul's message was consistent, not just to this church, but to, to churches that he was involved in. Acts 19.26 says, And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. This was Paul's message. He's like, look, you've got to turn away from the false gods. You've got to turn away from those things that you were worshipping. Turn away from those idols. You can't have anything to do with those anymore. And today, if we're thinking about idols, we, we potentially could, we could think about those that take the same forms as maybe what Paul was talking about. Physical idols, false gods, different religions, uh, different things that have been passed down from generation to, to generation and that would be true, that in some contexts that, that the gospel would go into, there would need to be that sense of turning from, from kind of that physical idols and icons and that kind of stuff. But idolatry is something we all have to turn from. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said that this is helpful when we're thinking about what idolatry is and why it's so serious. He says that our hearts have room for only one all-embracing devotion and we can only cleave to one Lord. The problem with idolatry, and the reason why idolatry is so dangerous, and why Paul deals with it so severely, is because he recognises that there are many things that would compete for that place that is reserved for God in our hearts. Our hearts have room only for one all-embracing devotion. Anything can become an idol if it stops you completely surrendering to Jesus. I think that is a helpful way of thinking about what idols might be. And oftentimes, the things that kind of present themselves as idols are kind of symptoms of what's really underlying underneath. And a lot of times, the things that we give ourselves to, a lot of times the things we put our hope in, a lot of things we look to pursue is because we're trying to have needs met that are deeper. could be about significance, security, approval, comfort. Or control. And we can take things that are intended, that are good things in and of themselves. Could be relationships or family. Could be money. Could be about our appearance. It could be about the house that we have. It could be about the job we have. None of these things in and of themselves are bad things. But if they become the thing that we give ourselves to, and kind of that's what drives us. And that's where we find our needs being met. That's when these things can become idols. 
Ephesians 5, 5. Again, Paul writing. says that you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetousness, so that's wanting what other people have, never being satisfied with what you've got. He says, that is an idolater. He has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So Paul's saying, actually, there's lots of things that, be- that can become idols. But these things are incompatible with what it means to follow Jesus. Because to follow Jesus, we have to surrender everything to him. We're to turn to God from idols. There's a real kind of ruthlessness about this. It's not just that when, uh, when, when we receive the gospel and when we put our faith in Jesus, we kind of add God on to what's already there. It's like, actually, no, it's, uh, it's, it, Paul talks about it as a turning away. It's a leaving behind. It's not that you add God onto these things. It's like actually you turn away from, from those things and turn to God. And it's a helpful picture of what repentance is when we're talking about repentance. It's that 180, turning 180 degrees, having a completely new direction from the way that we lived beforehand. And as we turn, leave this with a question, <clears throat> leave you with a question to think about. As we turn from idolatry, whatever that might look like in our lives, As we turn from idolatry, what would people notice that was different about us? So we turned from idols to serve the living and true God. And we've got this kind of um, comparison here that's going on. So we've got dead idols. We're turning from dead idols to the living God. We're turning from false idols to the true God. God. Paul's showing up the idols for what they are and pointing us in the direction of the living God. And for this church, they'd clearly turned away from their idolatrous past and they were clearly committed to serving God. They've moved from serving idols to serving God, yet it's in this new service that real freedom is found. Talking about service... Sometimes the Bible, it can be translated or in other circumstances it's talked about slavery. We were once slaves to sin or slaves to idols, now we're slaves to God. Talking about slavery can make us feel a bit, actually, not quite sure I want to go there. It's not a particularly comfortable thing. Are we really slaves? We're talking about freedom. But actually, as we serve God, there's freedom to be found in that. That's where freedom is found. And for this church, their lives looked completely different. What was now being witnessed as people looked on was faith, love and hope. Serving Jesus, they had freedom to live that way. We sang in that newer song today, there's a line that says, Lord, use my ransomed life in any way you choose. That's what it is to serve God. You paid the price for me to come into relationship with you. Use me however you want. That's the example this church was set in. And then wait for his son from heaven. It's possible to wait in a really passive, with a really passive attitude. I'm not going to do anything until the thing I'm waiting for has come along. I'm just going to wait. Maybe sometimes we can't actually do anything else until the thing we're waiting for has come along. But this can't be what Paul's writing about. Because while he tells us to wait, he's also telling us to serve, isn't he? Serve God, but wait for his son. 
It's not an either or, but a both and. They work together. The Thessalonians, I'm really struggling now, it's getting worse. I've got more preachers to do in this series. They're serving. Their faith, love and hope are so evident in the midst of persecution and opposition. Last week we were thinking that, about how hope looks to the future, to what is to come, and it's hope that produces steadfastness and endurance. This is what the church are demonstrating. They're demonstrating, look, we're in, in the midst of everything that's going on. In the midst of the persecution and affliction and opposition and rejection that we are facing, we're still going to keep serving. Why? Because we have a hope that goes beyond. Because our hope isn't based on our circumstances. Because our hope is not based on how well received we are or how well liked we are. Our hope is, is built on Jesus and we know that Jesus is coming back. So we wait in hope while we serve, knowing that Jesus, who has been raised from the dead, will come back for his church. And it's this hope of Jesus' return that enables us to serve with steadfastness whatever circumstances we find ourselves serving in. What a helpful reminder that is. That whatever situation you find yourself in, if you're feeling hopeless, if you're feeling like actually it's really hard to be a Christian where I am. Actually this Christian life is a lot harder than I ever thought or wanted it to be. Know this, Jesus is coming back for you. And for those who are found in him, this is something to celebrate. We're going to unpack this more in a few weeks. So turn, serve, and wait. This is the reputation that this church had built. This is the message that had gone out, not just locally, but had gone everywhere. This is a church who had received Paul and Silas and Timothy, they'd received the gospel message and they had held on to Paul's words to imitate them, to use them as their example. And as they've done that, as they've pressed on in, in faith and love and hope with steadfastness and endurance in the face of persecution, in the face of rejection, they themselves have become an example and a model for other believers to look at them and to look and say, actually, they're an example to us. Which is why I asked that question at the beginning. What do you want Fabsham Community Church to be known for? I want us to be known as a church who, who love the town, where people are welcome to come as they are. I want us to be known as a place where people will be loved and cared for. I want us to be known as a church that stands firmly on the word of God. I want us to be known as a church where people can, can come and encounter God. I want us to be known as a church who uh, serves the communities in many different ventures that we can do throughout the town. All of those things are good. 
But then I'm also, I'm also thinking, I want us to be a church where if people were to report back to us, they'd be able to say the same thing as they were about the church in Thessalonica. That actually there's something very different about these people than, than, the, rest of the, than the rest of the world. That we can see that they've turned from old things, that they're serving God and that they're waiting in hope. I just want to encourage you, in the days and weeks to come, think about that question again. How do you want Fabsham Community Church to be known? But I also want to just remind us of this. It's not just about the number of seats we fill on a Sunday. It's about how the Word of God sounds forth Monday through Sunday. 